Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This show focuses on an example that seems to personify the nature of our economic social model that allows corporate elite and their corporations to prioritize profits over public safety and public welfare to an egregious level, legally and extra-legally, that places profit not just first and foremost over people, but as a result, creates enormous and unnecessary stress and shorter lives for the majority population in the United States. It is a story that, as we speak today, has resulted in 500,000 deaths, twice the amount of the current COVID-19 pandemic. When corporate profits dwarf the well-being of the majority population with respect to which is the greater priority, the majority lose and they lose badly. Tonight, we discuss Purdue Frederick Corporation's role in the opioid epidemic that has swept our nation over the last 25 years and includes substantial portions of an April 17, 2008 show featuring Kirsten Meyer, attorney with Ropes and Gray in Boston, Massachusetts. And it has been augmented by current information related to yet another prosecution of Purdue Frederick some 15 years later, in which they just recently this month, October 2020, settled by paying out over $8 billion in damages. This program has been pre-recorded on Wednesday, October 28, 2020, to be broadcasted on Monday, November 2nd, 2020. For your listening edification, you can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 28th post-COVID show, A New World, But the Same Place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. Tonight's show is on Purdue Pharma as a major actor in the opioid crisis that has led to 500,000 deaths in the last two plus decades here in the United States, yet no one is going to jail. We will trace their behavior and prosecution beginning back 20 years ago. That included a 2007 where they agreed to a plea bargain. That included their top three executives pleading out to a misdemeanor misbranding charges and the corporation receiving a felony along with $634 million in fines to fast forwarding to their behavior that resulted just last week in a plea bargain to three felonies and paying an $8.3 billion settlement this time. We end the show with current analysis as of 2020 that confirms and authenticates the 2008 show content and conclusions. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, are you ready to go to war? This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gato. Good evening. We now turn to the content of tonight's show. Good evening, alternative news listeners. Welcome. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. And you've been listening to Magic ELJ with Soul Vaccination, and you're fixing on listening to Bringing Light into Darkness with your host, Pedro Gatos, here in Austin, Texas.
I just want to share the following information about the show tonight to give you an idea of what's up. Bringing Light into Darkness has covered the OxyContin case that reached a final verdict last year, and it was prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney John Brownlee. And there's so many dynamics to this case. There's the dynamic of reports of the U.S. Attorney's Office being influenced politically by the higher-ups there, at least John Brownlee landing on a second U.S. Attorney list to get fired and such. And we're not going to get into any of that. We're not going to get into much about Rush Limbaugh's relationship with OxyContin pain medication, which seemed to maybe give him a different idea about the nature of addiction and the, the condemning remarks that he has historically made about addiction and such. There are even more dynamics. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, the very, very powerful political figure, represented this corporation in its negotiations with the U.S. Attorney's Office, in its negotiations that they had with the, the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA as well. And so those are all stories all into themselves that are connected to this story. But tonight we're very pleased to share with you that the, the, the title of this show is going to be OxyContin, Corporate Criminal Law and the Public Welfare the prosecution of Purdue Frederick Corporation and its three highest executive officers. We had a very special guest that we taped an interview with before a series of, of activities that occurred here at the station, resulting in uh, the fire and, and us moving out here. And so This interview actually occurred on February 29th, but we're going to air it and have commentary following the excerpts from it. Kirsten Meyer was our special guest. She's an attorney. Last year on May 10th, 2007, it was announced that the Purdue Frederick Company Incorporated, along with three senior executives, its president, chief legal officer and former chief medical officer pled guilty to charges of misbranding Purdue's addictive and highly abusable drug OxyContin, which has been involved in hundreds of drug poisoning deaths since it was approved by the FDA. Uh, Purdue and the three executives will end up paying a total of $634 million, actually $634.5 million, and have admitted that Purdue fraudulently marketed OxyContin by falsely claiming that OxyContin was less addictive, less subject to abuse, and less likely to cause withdrawal symptoms than other pain medications when there was no medical research to support these claims and without Food and Drug Administration approval of those claims. Now, Kirsten Meyer is an attorney with Ropes and Gray in Boston, Massachusetts, and she'll provide an informed legal interpretation and understanding of the law from which the prosecutor, U.S. Attorney John Brownlee, proceeded to prosecute the corporation and its three chief executives. Some people feel that the execution of the case was too lenient. Some feel it was, it was too much. We'll give you some information to make your own judgment. Anyhow, okay, we're going to go ahead and go to the, this first track with Kirsten Meyer. Again, this, this interview took place on February 29, 2008. Okay, this is Pedro Gatos. This is Bringing Light into Darkness. And this is 91.7 KOOP Austin. And we are very blessed to have with us Kirsten Meyer. She is an attorney with Ropes and Gray up in Boston, Massachusetts. It's about a month ago or so we did a special on this OxyContin case. Uh, just to refresh our listeners, uh, there was a plea bargain that was reached on July 20th, 2007 uh, in the federal court of James P. Jones, chief U.S. district judge for Western Virginia, and he accepted a plea with the Purdue Corporation. Purdue agreed to pay a fine in the amount of $600 million in criminal fines, and additionally, there was another $34 million that was paid out by three of the top executives 
at the Purdue Corporation there. And this was in response to litigation that was carried forth by U.S. Attorney John Brownlee of the Department of Justice regarding a number of issues surrounding the marketing of OxyContin and what they called misbranding. And in my research, I had come across a very interesting article on the legal aspects, just generally speaking, of issues surrounding corporate law. And the article was by our guest, Kirsten Meyer. So first, Kirsten, I want to thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Let me just share with our listeners, the article that I was alluding to was a June 22, 2007 article in the Prescription Compliance Report, page 6, that has a subheading, Enforcement Trends, and the, the name of the article is Prosecution of Purdue Executive Signals, New Department of Justice Focus on Corporate Executives in Off-Label Marketing Arena, says attorney. I guess what I wanted to ask you is really from a legal perspective, if you could educate us a little bit, I guess maybe first into explaining what off-label means and what what misbranding means. I'd be happy to. Off-label and misbranding crimes are crimes that are prohibited by the, under federal law, under a statute called the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. Uh, That law prohibits introducing into commerce what are called adulterated or misbranded drugs or food. Marketing a drug off-label or for a use that's not within the scope of what FDA has approved the drug for is considered off-label and that that's a type of misbranding. So you can have drugs that have been approved for one type of issue regarding the FDA, but they could be perhaps found to be therapeutic in other areas, and there may be examples in which there is very appropriate use of uh, off-label use. Is that right? Absolutely. And it's important to remember in this area that it's absolutely legal for physicians to prescribe a drug for a use that's off-label. In some areas, in fact, of medicine, it is common and often standard of care uh, for a physician to prescribe drugs that are for an off-label use pediatrics or in the cancer area in particular. And physicians can do this. This, The Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act does not prohibit that. What it prohibits is the pharmaceutical manufacturer from marketing that off-label use to the physician. Okay. With respect to this particular case and, and specific to your article, you indicated that in your article that there had already been a precedent of sorts set by two cases with respect to what the Purdue Corporation and their executives were actually prosecuted under. And it was uh, two Supreme Court cases. One was U.S. versus Dodderwich or Weich, if you can help me out with that, and U.S. versus Park, in which evidently there was responsible corporate officer doctrine that was established. Can you let us know what those cases and what the case law pointed towards with respect to the issues connected to this case and I'm sure other cases perhaps? Sure. First, it's worth noting that in the Purdue case, the company pled guilty to felony violation of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and that is a violation that requires intent on the part of the person or company pleading guilty. So it's not just that the company you know, introduced a drug into the distribution system for off-label purposes, but that um, there, the company did it knowing that it was introducing the drug for off-label purposes. That's the nature of a felony uh, violation. The individual executives pled guilty to what's called a misdemeanor violation. And in this particular case, uh, the misdemeanor violation of the statute does not require any knowing violation of the law. Furthermore, 
the executives in the Purdue case were convicted of a misdemeanor under a Supreme Court-created doctrine that you mentioned, the Responsible Corporate Officer Doctrine. What this doctrine says is that essentially if a lower-level employee in a company violates the FDCA, off-label markets the drug, with or without an intent to do so, it could be an honest mistake, and you're an executive or manager who had responsibility or authority either to prevent the violation in the first instance or to correct it and you failed to do so, then you too can be criminally liable. So what that means is for executives in pharmaceutical companies, you can be found guilty of a crime and face potential jail time or significant fines. Whether or not you have yourself committed any bad act, whether or not you knew that anybody in your company was committing a bad act, and whether or not even the corporation expressly you know, gave you the duty to make sure that these people in your company didn't commit a bad act. So it is, from the perspective, I think, of a pharmaceutical executive or manager, a fairly startling result. just want to remind you that this is 91.7 KOOP Austin, and this is Bringing Light Into Darkness. We return to our interview. Right, but they also, does, isn't, isn't it true that as a prosecutor, you also absolutely have the right to, to not prosecute? In order to find out more about the specific facts of the case, there is a term called the agreed statement of facts that's usually included in a prosecution case of this nature. And, and first, can you just share with us, just from a legal perspective, is that a common, in any type of settlement or agreed uh, settlement, plea bargain or, or such, the agreed statement of facts, is that just what it sounds like? And, and can you tell us a little bit more about that portion of, of a case such as this, what it, what it reveals? Yes. When an, a company or an individual pleads guilty to a crime, court is going to want that company or individual to admit to facts that support the conviction. In a plea agreement, an agreed statement of facts will serve as the facts that support the conviction. And so if you could just put on the hat of a prosecutor, evidently you were, you were sharing with me in an earlier conversation that there was a certain procedural path or guidelines such that are, or a checkoff list of sorts that a, a federal prosecutor might might follow to determine whether or not a case should potentially be proceeded to prosecution. Can you share the content of such a list? Are you familiar with, the, with, with those guidelines? Yes. When a prosecutor is uh, trying to decide whether or not to prosecute a corporation for a crime, and I'm speaking of federal prosecutors at this point, the U.S. Department of Justice has issued a memorandum that provides guidelines for federal prosecutors to apply when they are evaluating whether to charge a corporation with a crime and, if so, what statute to use. The memorandum lists out nine factors that they should consider, and these factors include fairly common-sense ones like the nature and seriousness of the offense, including the risk of harm to the public, pervasiveness of the wrongdoing within the corporation, the corporation's history of similar misconduct, if there is any. Also, it includes factors that focus on efforts that the company had in place to try to prevent this misconduct. There is an acknowledgment that corporations are often large entities that uh, try very hard to prevent misconduct, but that doesn't mean that they will be 100% successful. So one of the factors is the extent and effectiveness of any compliance programs that the company had in place at the time. The factors also look at whether the company cooperated with the investigation and how much they cooperated, and also what, if any, remedial actions the company took, having discovered, to the extent that it did, any misconduct. These are factors that should be considered when evaluating whether to charge a company with misconduct. 
In addition to these, prosecutors are asked in the memo to consider what other consequences might happen if the company is charged with a crime. There are things that can happen to the company other than just its obligation to pay a big criminal fine that can have very serious consequences for shareholders, for employees, and for other people in the communities in which uh, these companies operate that should be taken into account when trying to decide whether to charge a corporation with a crime, and if so, what crime to charge. Okay, we're listening to an interview with uh, Kirsten Meyer. She is an attorney with Ropes and Gray in Boston, Massachusetts, and she's providing a, an informed legal interpretation and understanding of the law from which the prosecutor, U.S. Attorney John Brownlee, proceeded to prosecute the Purdue Corporation and its three chief executives regarding the OxyContin case. A number of deaths occurred throughout the nation. This drug is, as you'll learn as we move forward in this program, is, is a very good pain relief medication for chronic pain victims and, and such, but it's also a very, very powerful, powerful addictive substance as well. So anyhow, we will return to our interview. Very good. I want to just remind our listeners that we are visiting with Ms. Kirsten Mayer from Ropes and Gray, Boston, Massachusetts law firm. Uh, she wrote an article regarding the Purdue executive case, the OxyContin case. For those listeners that aren't familiar with this case, this is a case in which OxyContin is a long-acting narcotic pain reliever. And, and, and of course, pain relief is, is hugely appropriate and it's a real godsend for those people that have ever had serious pain whether it be from burn victims and whatever and this particular drug is long-acting time-released medication that allowed users or potential uh, abusers to actually bypass the intent of the drug and crush it and then relieve and then relieve it of its its time releasing capacity and get an immediate kind of heroin like rush by ingesting it either uh, intranasally or uh, intravenously or, or whatever and you were speaking earlier that this is a this is a federal prosecution one of the things that I found interesting was that the period of prosecution according to the US Attorney General John Brownlee who who, who prosecuted the case was he stated from 1996 to 2001 however there was an immunity granted for any future potential litigation by the Department of Justice from 2001 through 2007 Returning back to the prosecution in general, you, you made a really interesting deal there when you were talking about these nine factors and, and the shareholders, those types of things, what type of ramifications a prosecution might take against peripheral parties and, and those types of things. And I guess that really is the crux of the matter because we have so many wonderful pharmaceutical drugs that are so appropriate for different types of uh, illnesses. And then at the same time, there is always the potential to expand the audience artificially, so to speak, in order to create more sales and, of course, benefit the bottom line and stuff. And I guess that's kind of the balance that is sought through these processes. But when we go back and visit these two Supreme Court cases, was that the first time in which corporations were held accountable for damages that evidently exceeded the concern that peripheral parties may be damaged by losing potential you know, money shares in their investment or whatever. What I'm trying to ask is that the, the Supreme Court cases that we refer to, how, how long ago were they, and are you familiar with the facts surrounding the, those cases? And could you indicate that the, the, vicar the vicarious liability issue, how that translates in a way that non-attorneys can understand that with respect to the duties of the corporation? 
Sure, I'd be happy to explain a little bit. The two Supreme Court cases that you mentioned earlier, U.S. versus Dodderweich, and I'm not 100% sure that's how you pronounce it, and U.S. versus Park, focus just on individual executive liability. So if I can just take a step back, corporations can be held criminally liable for the acts of their employees. You know, a corporation is, isn't a person. It doesn't you know, have a mind that could intend to commit a crime. And so the way we hold corporations responsible is by holding them responsible for the act committed by their employees or agents. What that means is every corporation is in some sense vicariously liable when it is liable for something. And a corporation can be liable for the criminal acts of a low-level employee. It doesn't you know, have to be someone who's really in a command and control position. It can be held responsible for the acts of an employee, criminally responsible for the acts of an employee, even if the employee is acting expressly against corporate policy. It's a very strict liability policy for corporations. And the rationale for that, in part, is that the corporation is in the best position to prevent misconduct by its employees. When it comes to individuals, traditionally, we think of individuals as being able to be guilty of a crime only if they actually have done two things, a bad act with a bad intent. So if you think of kind of the more day-to-day, run-of-the-mill criminal conduct, you know, someone breaks into my house and steals my stereo. What makes it a crime is that they've committed a bad act breaking into my house that's criminally prohibited, and they've stolen my stereo. And they did it knowing that, it, that they were you know, going into my house and taking my stereo. They had a bad intent, and they committed a bad act. For these kind of off-label misbranding offenses, selling a drug, promoting a drug, not just selling, but actually marketing a drug for use that's outside the scope of what FDA has approved, well, you need both to commit the prohibited act and to have an intent to defraud or mislead to be guilty of a felony. The misdemeanor provision, all you have to do is commit the bad act. There's no requirement that you have a bad intent. And that's very unusual in the criminal law. And this is, we are getting to the Supreme Court cases very shortly. But for certain public health and welfare offenses, Congress and the Supreme Court have agreed that it's okay to hold people criminally responsible just for the bad act, even if they didn't have a bad intent. And of course, laws that are designed to protect the integrity of our drug and food and medical device supply are kind of a classic public welfare statute where you may see something like this misdemeanor crime. What was unusual about the two Supreme Court cases that you mentioned earlier is that they took this misdemeanor liability one step further and permitted the government to convict someone of a misdemeanor offense under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, even if they themselves didn't commit the bad act. So we've already said that if a felony is usually the bad act plus the bad intent, and for public health and welfare crimes... There's a special exception that allows you to convict someone of a misdemeanor crime, even if they don't have a bad intent, but they've done a bad act. What these Supreme Court cases did is they said, we can convict someone provided they were in a position of responsibility and authority in the corporation that put them in a position to either prevent a violation of law in the first instance or to correct it, and they failed to do so. So they themselves haven't done a bad act, and they didn't have the bad intent. They can still be convicted of a crime. And that's why the prosecution using this theory historically has been rare and unusual. It's it's a little confusing when you hear people say, and I've read it in other places, not just from listening to you, that there's no admitting of any guilt by entering into a plea bargain at a misdemeanor level, yet uh, you are entering into a probation and a certain punitive effect. So there must be some indication that there is... An agreement. I guess 
that's probably where if you or if one's interested they could go to the agreed statement of facts to find out exactly what all parties are agreeing to on a fact basis well just to take one step back because i think it is it is very difficult to, to understand and wrap your head around and uh, and so i want to be you know make sure we understand exactly what the government does and doesn't have to prove to convict someone under this responsible corporate officer doctrine i mean the way the court they actually don't have to prove that there was an actual concrete ability to prevent the violation the way you and I would normally think of it. You know, if I watch my son in the kitchen playing near the stove and fiddling with the dials that turn the burners on and off, and I just let him do that, you know, I'm in a position actually to prevent anything bad from happening even if I don't act, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm at least on notice that there's a, a, a strong risk there, and I can see him fiddling with the dials. You know, the responsible corporate officer doctrine says that you have to have had responsibility or authority to prevent the violation. This doesn't mean that you knew anything about it. This doesn't mean that, you know, if you put in place good controls to prevent it from happening, but somebody ignores them, still technically you had the responsibility to prevent it and you didn't, so you can still be found liable. It doesn't even necessarily mean that you have to be the person who was directly responsible. I mean, if you think about a large pharmaceutical organization, I mean, you can imagine if I'm, you know, a district manager that supervises, immediately supervises professional sales representative. There's an argument to be made that I am, in some sense, have direct authority and direct responsibility for that person's compliance with the law, potentially. The CEO of the company, who may not even recognize the names of the employees, <laughs> certainly doesn't interact with them on a day-to-day -day basis, is still potentially within the structure of the corporate framework, you know, in line to have responsibility and authority for the conduct of these folks that, mm -hmm. you know, live two-thirds of the way across the country and operate and do business there. And so it really, it really is important to remember that the scope of the doctrine, the way the Supreme Court has chosen to lay it out, literally holds executives in these companies responsible for total compliance by their employees. I guess if you have sales managers, are they, are, they're not immune from prosecution, obviously, under something like this, if, if, and not even talking specifically about this case, but the fact that they went after the highest executives in this corporation and they didn't put anyone else on any type of probation that might have been closer to the very issues that you say they may have not known anything about seems a little uh, interesting to me. Ms. Meyer, before you respond to that, we need to take a quick break. I want to remind folks we are visiting with Kirsten Meyer, attorney, and we'll return to bringing light into darkness right after this. 